of water, though, bro. Good evening. My name is Paul Rauschenbusch, and I am the Associate Dean of Religious Life in the Chapel at Princeton University. On behalf of Dean Blanks and Dean Breidenthal, it is my pleasure to welcome all of you to tonight's panel discussion, God's Politics, the Role of Prophetic Religion in America. I would also like to thank the other sponsors of tonight's program, Princeton Theological Seminary, the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, the James Madison Program in American Ideals, and the University Center for Human Values. It is an honor to be given the opportunity to introduce our speakers tonight. I will keep these introductions very brief first because these two people really need no introduction, as is evidenced by the turnout here tonight. But more importantly, so that we can maximize our opportunity to be listen and be inspired towards a new way of thinking about religion and politics in America. Our program will begin with a talk by Reverend Wallace, followed by a response by Dr. West. At the end of this time, they will take questions from the audience, and we will strive to end this program around 9.30. Reverend Wallace will be available to sign books at the conclusion of this evening's program. You will also have the opportunity to sign up to keep in close contact with Reverend Wallace at the call to renewal and sojourners at the table at my right. See, say your name, Jesse. Jesse will uh, would love to sign you up. Uh, sign you up. Uh, Dr. Cornell West, first of all, is the 1943 professor of religion at Princeton University. Dr. West is a teacher-preacher in the best sense of the phrase. His academic brilliance and multifaceted work on behalf of oppressed peoples comes out of a deeply rooted Christian experience and commitment. He is the author of numerous articles and books, including Race Matters and, most recently, Democracy Matters. He is also one of the most consistent and persuasive huggers in the academy. <laughs> Jim Wallace has been a courageous witness during his 30 years of public ministry. He is the editor of Sojourners Magazine and convener of The Call to Renewal, which is a group working across political and theological lines to overcome poverty. Reverend Wallace's most recent book, God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It, has been a national bestseller and has inspired a new conversation about religion and values in America. In front of you are two of the most impressive and inspiring living examples of men who have combined an unceasing faith with a profound commitment to social justice and making the world a better place. Their lives are testimony to their work. Please join me in welcoming to Princeton University Reverend Jim Wallace and Dr. Cornell West. Thank you. It is, it is good to be back at this great university, but also this great community, because you are both. 
And I have lots of friends here, and it's very, it's a delight to be back, but especially, I must say, to be with my friend. Cornel West is one of our greatest truth-tellers in America. You might say he's a preacher with content. (laughs) Some have less content than others. But Cornel West has great content, and more than that, he has great spirit. To marry spirit and content the way he does is a great gift. I am humbled to be with him tonight up here, a great ally, a friend, and and sometimes co-conspirator. So thank you, Cornell. You know, my son Luke is six years old. Uh, He and Jack, my two-year-old, are the delight of my life. And Luke and I were working the streets uh, this Halloween, trick-or-treating, right before the election. And sensing the national moment, my son looked up at me and said, Daddy, this election is more important than Halloween, isn't it? (laughs) Indeed it was. Especially, perhaps, the role of religion in this election. Because many people watched the way religion was used, and many would say abused, in this election. Then they watched the way that Faith is often portrayed in the media. Then they they see how religion is invoked in the White House, in the higher circles of power, and they say to themselves, that's not my faith. Those aren't my moral values. Where is my voice? I don't hear it. Did you ever feel that way? <laughs> I'm meeting those people all across the country. We're having, Cornell, we're having town meetings disguised as book signings. <laughs> we're having revivals in bookstores. And I'm meeting people who have come out not because of a book, but because of a moment. They're a part of two. And so I want to make an announcement. Because I've been to the East, I've been to the Midwest, I've been to the South, I've been to Texas. I've been to the Rocky Mountains in California and the Pacific Northwest, and I have some good news. I want to report to you that when it comes to religion and values and politics, the monologue of the religious right is finally over and a new dialogue has just begun. You might call this the rise of the non-religious right. (laughs) It's not much of a name for a movement. But the word movement is on everyone's lips. How do I join? How do I become a part of this? What do I do? I am exhausted and yet exhilarated from what I'm seeing across the country. Because sometimes when your faith drives you to justice or compels you to peace, you feel alone, don't you? 
or when all the political decisions always go the other way than the way you might have preferred, you often feel alone. Or when the way faith is portrayed in the public arena never feels like your faith, it can make you feel very alone. Well, look around tonight and don't feel alone anymore. Don't feel alone anymore. You know who's coming? I'll tell you who's coming, and maybe you'll recognize yourself in the crowd. Evangelicals, like me, and I'll say, someone's going to say, what does he mean by that evangelical? (laughs) I'll explain later. Evangelicals like me, who don't feel represented by the Jerry Falwells. And there are millions of them. Then there are Catholics who don't feel spoken for by a handful of right-wing bishops who say there is only one issue on which Catholics can vote, and all the rest of Catholic social teaching ought to be ignored. They're coming out too. Mainline Protestants who who feel like somehow their faith has been, been, as we say in my neighborhood, dissed, disrespected. Act like they don't even have faith, these mainline Protestants. And then a whole lot of, a lot, a whole lot of black Christians say, wait a minute, this has been a pretty white conversation. You know, when they say the media evangelicals, they mean white evangelicals. They don't mean the historic black churches. They want to be in this too. Asian, Latino Christians, and then a whole bunch of rabbis are coming. Whole lot of Jewish folks in the audience. They want to hear again, Micah, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And then there's a bunch of people who say, you know, I'm I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Or always someone who says, I'm an agnostic. Thank you for making me feel included tonight, too, because I also care about moral values. Wherever you are in that conversation, this is a moral discourse on politics, one that our nation desperately needs, and each one of us is needed for. I feel a hunger for this conversation in every part of the country. And tonight here, we're going to have that conversation. What does faith mean? What do values mean? What is a moral discourse on our public life? In Boston, I was telling Cornell and some folks over over dinner, a young man came up to the table and said, I'm gay. Thank you for making me feel included tonight. But you know what? It's easier to come out as gay in Boston than it is to come out as religious in the Democratic Party. (laughs) How do we have a better conversation? I want to suggest what we're not doing tonight, as far as I can tell. I don't want to, and I I want to explain this carefully, I don't want to just help create a new religious left as opposed to the religious right. You know why? Because I think the religious right is the political seduction of religion. The religious right was created by the political right. It was their idea. They had meetings, political operatives and television preachers. They made a deal, a Faustian bargain. Give us your lists. Give us your database. 
and we'll make you famous. We'll make you household words. And so they have created this, 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 this political wedge, this weapon. Religion is not supposed to be a wedge that divides us. It's supposed to be a bridge that brings us back together again. Amen? So if one side wants to make religion into a partisan wedge, an ideological weapon, why would we want to create just a counterpart on the other side? I want to make sure my party wins no matter what they're standing for or what they're doing. Rather, faith should be prophetic. Prophetic, meaning it's independent. It has a moral force, an agency. It can critique left and right. It can hold a nation accountable to a compass. Lincoln had it right. He said, you don't act like God is on your side. You worry. You pray earnestly to be on God's side. The God on our side leads to bad stuff. It leads to hubris, overconfidence, triumphalism, and always bad foreign policy. (laughs) (laughs) Worrying if we're on God's side leads to the good stuff of politics, like humility, penitence, reflection, and maybe even accountability. If Lincoln had it right, King did it best. Bible in one hand, Constitution in the other hand. This was a conversation in which everybody was welcome. Baptists like him, Catholics, rabbis like Abraham Joshua Heschel, who came down from Boston to Selma, and agnostics who tell me today still they were there. They're still agnostic. But those were the spiritual high points of their lives. Everybody was welcomed to the table when he held forth a moral discourse on politics. How do we restore religion to its prophetic status, its its role, its dynamic possibilities? Religion doesn't neatly fit into our categories. It is not just left and right, liberal and conservative. We face a a bifurcation, a polarization, uh, a paralyzing of politics when everything just fits in the categories of left and right. Washington, D.C., where I live, they take an issue, and they do two things. First, they want to make you afraid of it. Then they want to blame it on the other side. Then they take a poll (laughs) to see who won. And the election is just the last poll. They never get back around to solving the problem. Take an issue I've worked with, like youth violence. Does youth violence really have only two sides? You need multiple vantage points and, and constituencies and stakeholders and eyes, uh, sight lines to solve a problem. And the media, oh, they're real helpful. Did you know every issue has just two sides? And they do these, you know, the pre-interview, uh, the, the pre-interviews for TV shows. I call them the, the uh, conflict auditions. To see if the talking heads have enough conflict to make for good television. Mm. They don't want to solve anything either. Make you afraid, politics of fear, politics of blame. I'll tell you, the country is hungry for something else. The country is hungry for a politics of solutions and the politics of hope. And that crosses all of our political dividing lines. I love 
Cornell said, that's a good title, that's subtitle. Why the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it. It is a good subtitle. <laughs> and here's what I mean by it. The right, they're very comfortable with the language and, and territory of religion, values, and faith. So comfortable with, and God, so comfortable, it's almost like they think they own the territory. It belongs to them. Maybe they own God, they think. But then they reduce everything. All the moral values issues really come down to just two. They're trying to make it easy for us. It's only about abortion and gay marriage. That's all, folks. Get those two straight, you get it down. There's nothing else left. Well, you know what? As an evangelical Christian, I can't ignore 3,000 verses in the Bible that talk about poor people and poverty, so I will insist fighting poverty is a moral values issue too. And while, and while we're on the topic, protecting the environment, otherwise known as God's creation, is a moral values issue too. And somebody, somebody needs to say, like George Hunzinger says, the ethics of war, when you go to war, how you go to war, and whether you tell the truth about going to war is a profoundly religious matter too. So let's have a values conversation. As the Christian that I've heard in the White House says, bring it on. Let's have a values conversation, but let's make sure it's wide enough and deep enough so these values can shape a moral compass to guide our public life. Now the left, they're, they're too often quite uncomfortable with the territory of values, religion, and even God. So on Sunday night, when they had this Justice Sunday, and they told us that not only was God a Republican, not only, and they did say this during the campaign, not only could good Christians only vote for George W. Bush, but now, if you don't support all of his judicial nominees, you are not, as they said, a person of faith. So, when one side claims God to be in their pocket, and the other side has a hard time getting out the G word at all. <laughs> it's like a debate with two podiums, but only one podium is filled, the other is empty. One podium frames the debate, dictates the term, and they always win the debate, because no one's even talking on the other side. Or in Oregon, a progressive journalist said, we seem to have an allergy to spirituality. This Democratic Party used to have, just a few decades ago, a vital relationship to a civil rights movement led by black churches. How did it become, now portrayed so successfully, as the secular party, the party hostile to faith, or as they said Sunday night, Hostile, the Democrats are hostile to people of faith. 
Where would we be if the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had just kept his faith to himself? Where would we be? I believe, before you ask, I believe in the separation of church and state. I really do. That does not mean the segregation of moral values from public life or the banishing of religious language from our political discourse. It is possible to talk of faith and values in a way that is democratic, welcoming, tolerant, respectful of our diversity. It is possible to do, and we must do it. The worst mistake progressives have made in these last several decades, the worst mistake is to concede the entire territory of values and religion to a religious and political right. It is a mistake we must never make again. Now, when they put you on book tours, you know, they, they put you on TV a lot. So um, sometimes you're on the O'Reilly Factor, and other, other nights you have fun. Uh, so the next night after O'Reilly was the John Stewart Daily Show. How many of you? So John comes back before the show. And I could tell he's read the book cover to cover because he's asking questions from the end of the book. <laughs> and he's asking smart questions like, what is the relationship between aid, trade, and debt in overcoming global poverty? He's a funny guy, but he's a serious guy. I'm afraid I'm going to ask silly questions, he said. I said, isn't that your job? <laughs> So we get out there, he says, now, Jim, you want to bring religion uh, to bear, uh, like the, the teachings of Jesus uh, to bear, on, 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 on politics? <laughs> and I could feel millions of his youthful audience saying to themselves, oh, no, he's got some wacko evangelical preacher on my favorite. You're going to ruin my favorite show. I can feel it. I can feel it. So I said, yeah, John. And I hardly think Jesus, too, top priorities would have been a capital gains tax cut and the occupation of Iraq. <laughs> so, and, and with that, we got the audience. So they've been cheering. My favorite, they cheered, Cornell, for Matthew 25. <laughs> I said, as you've done to the least of these. It's my conversion passage, so I'm explaining my conversion. As you've done the least of these, Jesus said, you've done to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah! You know? And so they, we got some Christian Jewish thing going, and he, he said, he asked a question, I said, good question, John. He said, you mean, good question for a Jewish guy. I know we aren't going to have him, but can we have our own neighborhood, maybe nearby? He said, we'll keep it clean, you know? I said, now we're all, John, for moral values, and he didn't say anything. I said, well, John, you're for moral values. He said, can I have the weekends off? <laughs> I said, John, getting serious, I said, John, the Hebrew prophets used truth-telling and humor and satire often to make their points. You do all three very well. Maybe, John, you're in the tradition of the biblical prophets. He goes, oh. <laughs> and afterwards he said, he put his hand on my arm, he said, and I'm pretty secular, but I really like this stuff. And I'd like to find a way that I could be involved too, even though I'm 
pretty secular. So I said, John, don't write yourself off as secular. There's a spiritual and moral edge to everything you're doing. Trust it. Follow it. And I say to any of you, if you're not religious, don't write yourself off. This is a conversation you need to be a part of, too. Because then the emails came. Hundreds and then thousands from young people who, frankly, are outside the hearing of most of our voices. They don't, they don't, they didn't know who Jim Wallace, Tony Campolo, James Forbes, maybe not even Cornell West. They're just out there, and here's what they said. I lost my faith because of television preachers, pedophile priests, cover-up bishops, bad fundraising, and White House theology. I lost my faith, but maybe I might come back. Or this was the amazing part. I didn't know, they said, I didn't know you could be a Christian and care about poverty. (laughs) Or care about the environment. Or be against the war in Iraq. They didn't know. They didn't know a progressive religious option was even possible. But when they heard, they all said, I want to come back. I want, to, I want to get there. I want to find this. I want to find my way back to this. What I hate so much about how religion has been so, so reduced to this partisan warfare is we miss what faith is supposed to be about. I was speaking to a group of students, very different than this crowd. It wasn't a great university. It was a... Well, it was Sing Sing Prison in upstate New York. The prisoners wrote, the inmates wrote, come and talk to us. I said, sounds good, interesting. Uh, when do you, I wrote back, when do you want me to come? This young brother writes back, he says, well, he says, we're free most nights. <laughs> he said, he was a real funny guy, we're kind of a captive audience here. <laughs> so the prison authorities were very generous. They gave us this room down in the bowels of Sing Sing. You know, this is Sing Sing. You know the phrase, up the river? That's Sing Sing, up the Hudson River. They left me alone with these 80 guys for five hours. It's a night I won't hardly ever forget. One of them said to me, he said, he said, Jim, all of us at Sing Sing, all of us at Sing Sing, almost all of us are from just about four or five neighborhoods in New York City. Just about four or five neighborhoods in New York City. It's like a train, he said. A train starts in my neighborhood. You get on that train when you're nine or ten years old, and the train ends up here at Sing Sing. What an image. A train that departs from just certain zip codes on its way to predictable destinations. This young man I met who said, uh, he said, you know, he'd had a spiritual conversion inside the walls. He was part of a program of New York Theological Seminary training masters of divinity inside the walls of Sing Sing, teaching preachers inside the joint. So you graduate when your sentence is up. He'd had a conversion, and he said to me, when I get out, 
When I get out, I want to go back and stop that train. My friends, that is a faith-based initiative. So, so two years later, two years later, I'm back in New York City for a town meeting. Guess who's up front? Back home, stopping that train. Now, faith, if there's one thing I want you to remember tonight, it's this. Faith is meant to change the big things. Faith is for changing the big things. The things that nobody thinks can be changed. The things that seem like they're impossible, that are against all the odds. Faith is for changing the big stuff. Fast-moving urban trains on their way to prison, that's a big thing that faith is supposed to change. Here's another big thing. 30 billion, 3 billion people. 3 billion people living on $2 a day is a big thing. 30,000 children in a silent tsunami die every day because of hunger and disease due to hunger and lack of clean drinking water. Things that we could change and change even quickly if we ever decided it was important. That's a big thing. Faith is meant to change the big things. That's why we have faith. Now, I said I'd tell you this, so I'm going to. I'm a 19th century evangelical, born in the wrong century. The 19th century evangelicals, they fought to abolish slavery. They fought for women's suffrage. They fought for child labor law reform. Charles Finney was the evangelist of his day. He was the Billy Graham. He invented the altar call. Do you know why? Because he wanted to get the names and addresses of his converts to sign them up for the anti-slavery campaign. That's why. That's why we have the altar call, to sign up for the anti-slavery campaign. That's why we started this thing. The publisher hates this part, but I want to tell you, whether you buy a book or not, I want your names. We're doing altar calls across the country. We want people to sign up for a movement. Because only movements change history. Not politics and politicians. They change politics and politicians. Social movements are what change history. And the best ones always have a spiritual foundation. So I'm six years old, and I'm in my evangelical church, and uh, things are going well. I thought my parents were nervous, because here I am, six years old, and in the language of my church, I hadn't been saved yet. I'm getting up in years. I'm six years old. And so they're worried, you know. And so a fiery Sunday night preacher was coming to town, and we heard about him for weeks. And the thought of him coming scared me to death. But if this is packed tonight, but if it wasn't, I guarantee this row's empty. Front row is empty because people think the closer you are to a sermon, the more impact it will have on your life. You know? So... We had to sit in the front row because my parents, our parents, made the kids sit there. So he came and he preached, and he was as fiery and scary as he'd been advertised. He said, hmm, if Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven, and you would be left all by yourself. 
It got my attention. And I realized as a six-year-old, I would have had a five-year-old sister to support. So I asked my mother how to fix this thing because she was good at fixing stuff. She told me not about the wrath of God for a little boy, but about the love of God for me, that God wanted me to be God's child. I thought, cool, sign me up. So I repented of the sin and degradation of my first six years, <laughs> which was quite substantial. <laughs> and I signed up, and it was going fine until my second conversion. That was the big one. Mm. It took me out of the church. I'm 14 in Detroit, Michigan. I'm now paying attention, reading the newspapers, listening to my city. And I asked just an innocent 14-year-old question. How come we live the way we do in white Detroit and life seems so different? in black Detroit, at least from what I can tell, from what I hear. People without jobs, hungry, no safe place to live, people in jail. We don't know these things. How come we never been to a black church? Never had a black preacher. And what is this minister in the South? What's his name? King. What's he up to? You're too young to ask these questions. When you get old, Older, you'll understand, or we don't know why it's that way, but it's always been that way, or one honest answer finally came. If you keep asking these questions, son, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. That proved to be true. (laughs) So I went into the city, Detroit, my hometown. Couldn't get answers in where I was living, and I, I met the other evangelical church. Love the same Jesus. Read the same Bible and sang sang out of the same hymn book, but made it sound so much better than we did. (laughs) And I brought my new friends and new answers and new questions back home. And here's what I was told one night in a pivotal moment that just turned my life upside down. Jim, Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. Political. Our faith is personal. I couldn't push the questions down anymore. So I left that night. Childhood faith, home church, I left. Found the civil rights movement, anti-war movements, came back to faith later, but I didn't have words that night for what I had heard. Now I do. And the words are these. God is personal. God is personal, but never private. God is personal, but never private. This God wants relationship. Jesus says the very hairs of our head are numbered. This God knows everything about every one of us and wants a relationship with us anyway. Why? Because... This God wants to enlist us, to sign us up, (laughs) to work on God's purposes in the world. To change the things in the world this God hates. And do the things this God loves. This book is about a public God. 
who talks about rulers, princes. The prophets say all the time, employers, judges, topics, land, labor, capital, equity. Who's the prophet talking about? Widows, orphans, workers, left out, left behind. This is a public God. Personal, but never private. You know, people are getting this. I'm learning all over the country, and what really surprised me is how young they're getting this. The first week or two, it was, it was signing books for a lot of 20-somethings, like a lot of you. I expected that. Didn't expect, how old are you? Well, I'm in school. What, what year? Well, I'm in high school. Oh, what year? Freshman. No mom and dad. Him and his friends. He's 15. Hmm. He wants a book signed. I thought that was pretty cool until he began signing for 14-year-olds, 13-year-olds. Two weeks ago in Minnesota, a little tiny girl is standing in front of the table. I mean, she's tiny. I look up and I say, how old are you? She says, I'm 11. I stopped the line. <laughs> You're 11. What did you get out of tonight? Well... I think we're just going to have to change the world. <laughs> and, and who is going to do that? Well, probably people like me. So I tell her story in Tacoma, Washington. Sure enough, afterwards, my little girl, I look up, she says, nine. <laughs> uh, why do you want your book signed? She's nine. Well, ever since I've heard about this book, I've really been looking forward to reading it. <laughs> Tell her story in Seattle the next night. Sure enough, there she is. I look up. Yep, I'm eight years old. What made sense to you tonight? Well, beautiful little girl. When you talked about that everyday tsunami thing, that's killing all those kids, like me, I figure that we better do something about that. She's in the third grade, and she wants to do something hmm. about that. I want to end with this. When I was growing up in that little church, they told me the real choice was between belief and, and secularism. That's the big choice. A lot of folks still feel that way. As we got belief, and over here we got this thing that's called secular humanism. It's a creepy, crawling thing, you know. <laughs> it eats your children, you know. <laughs> belief and secular humanism. That's not the big choice. But there is a big choice. The big choice for us, and maybe for a lot of people like us, who would be drawn to an event like tonight with a couple crazy guys like this, the real choice is this. The real choice is between, for us, hope and cynicism. Hope and cynicism. Now, just to be fair to the cynics, I'm sympathetic to the cynics. The cynics are against the bad stuff. They, they don't see the world with rose-colored glasses. They're, they're against the bad stuff. They, they even tried to change it for a while, maybe. They did, but after a while it didn't change, and they got disappointed. They got discouraged. 
They were out there, and, and it wasn't changing, and they began to feel vulnerable. And so they just stepped back a little, and, and they found this, this haven, this protective place called cynicism, which says, yeah, it's bad, but we really can't change it. We're really not going to change it. So it's okay to look after your own security a little bit. I'm sympathetic with the cynics. Because they've been hurt, and they've been disappointed, and they felt vulnerable. And they pulled back to a place called cynicism, which buffers you against commitment. Now, hope is different. Hope is not a feeling. Hope is not a state of mind. Hope is not a personality type. Hope is a decision. Hope is a choice you make because of faith. My Bible says now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen, or my best paraphrase is, hope means believing in spite of the evidence, and then watching the evidence change. Every single change over here, like the story I told today at the seminary, the inauguration day of Nelson Mandela. Every change over here starts with a group of people over here deciding that day is possible and they're going to bet their life on it. Discussing faith never changed the world. Betting your life on it does. And while we're at it, let's talk about the real difference between career, I see a lot of students, and vocation. I want you to suggest to Princeton to throw away the career counseling department. (laughs) Because career is assembling your assets to get on the highest rung of one of the ladders of ascent as possible. Start on level two or three. My Harvard students think they deserve to be on level four to start. And you get on that ladder with your assets, and you go up the ladder of success, and if you're an evangelical, you talk about me and the Lord all the way up. (laughs) That's career. Vocation is very different. Vocation, you don't assess your assets. Assemble your assets. You discern your gift. Your gift. What's your gift? What do you lose track of time when you're doing What's really down here? What's in your soul, your gut? What, what are you most passionate about? What are you really good at? What were you probably put on this earth to do? That's your gift. Where your gift meets the crushing needs of the world is your vocation. Your gift, the crushing needs of the world, is your vocation. All we need is a critical mass of people to find their gift, discern their vocation, and join a movement. That's all we need. For a commission for that movement, I want to talk about a friend of mine to close. Cornell knew her, too. Her name was Lisa Sullivan. 
young African-American sister who, who grew up in D.C. in our streets. She was so smart, she went to Yale and got a Ph.D. <laughs> and when you're young and female and black and you got a Yale Ph.D. these days, you can write a ticket to lots of places. But she got drawn back to the streets and the kids on the streets who'd won her heart, and she became the best street organizer I'd ever seen. She's rap, hip-hop, she scolded, she hugged, she loved, she confronted, she fundraised, she organized, she, as they say, built capacity. She did it all, was the best. She was a star, she was the future. And she was on my board, and she's my friend. And one day I got a call. Lisa had a big heart, but her big heart had a heart ailment. And within two or three weeks, Lisa Sullivan was gone. Marion Wright Edelman and I, the Children's Defense Fund, we held each other at Lisa's gravesite, and we just wept because she was the future. She was for real. But she leaves us a, a, a commission, a benediction, and it's this. When people would say to Lisa, Lisa, the problem it's just too big. The drugs, the streets, the violence, the corruption, the apathy. It's too big. It's too big. And we, our budget, our staff, our resources, our faith is too small. It's too big and we're too small. And you know, Lisa, we don't have any Martin Luther King Jr.'s anymore. We don't have any leaders anymore. It's too big, we're too small, and we haven't got any leaders. And she'd get mad, really mad. She said, don't say that. Don't say it's too big and we're too small. And don't ever say that we don't have any leaders anymore. Don't you understand? She'd say, don't you understand? And here's what she'd say. Don't you understand? We are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones that we have been waiting for. I don't spend much of my time not being the religious right or confronting them or worrying about them. We've got to stop talking about who we're against and who we don't like. The world wants to know what we're for, what we're going to do, what our faith means. The world is waiting for us to pay attention to Lisa. If only a handful of us did, we'd shake the world. Because, my friends, in this great community called Princeton, even here, we are the ones, you are the ones, you are the ones that we have been waiting for. Thank you very much. Voice, visionary voice, 
It's always a blessing to see Brother Jim Wallace. And each time he talks about Lisa, it brings back precious memories here. I could see her in my seminar when I was teaching at Yale in 1985. She was the brightest one there pushing me against the wall. Which is what one wants in a classroom, of course, uh, even for professors. And when I read your book and came to the end, though, brother, it, uh, it, it brought tears to my eyes. Just for, it's at least 40 years old. She and I had just been in Italy together, actually, working with uh, Italian activists just two years previously. <coughs> I am very blessed and honored and privileged to be here in conversation with Brother Wallace, I think it's very important for each and every one of us to acknowledge the degree to which Brother Wallace has been laboring in the vineyard now for over 30 years. It goes all the way back, 1971 in seminary, coming out of Michigan State University, preacher's kid, having the courage to cut against the grain, shattering bonds of conformity and complacency and cowardice in it vanilla suburb outside a chocolate city named Detroit. And cut against the grain in that context takes tremendous amount of, of courage. And then the founding of the magazine Sojourners, first entitled Post America, trying to put the cross above the flag, trying to shatter the idol of a nationalism, not because that nationalism hasn't provided great gifts to the world in terms of democratic practices, libertarian sensibilities, but still acknowledging as a Christian that every nation stands under judgment at that cross, drawing a radical distinction between prophetic Christians who look at the world through the lens of the cross from the underside, as it were, in Augustinian Christians, those who are very comfortable at the table of the most powerful and often render the most vulnerable invisible. So what you're actually hearing here is over 35 years of struggle and sacrifice and service, and that's very important to keep in mind. Because I always remind these dynamite and wonderful students here at Princeton that line 38A of Plato's Apology, the unexamined life is not worth living. And then add what Malcolm X noted, the examined life is painful. You have to be unsettled and unnerved and unhoused. And Brother Wallace has been wrestling with what it means to be unsettled and unnerved and unhoused now. For over 34 years with that grand institution, Sojourners, and so many everyday people and ordinary folk who work alongside him, who empower him even as he empowers them. And I think it's also important to keep in mind the historical backdrop. He's absolutely right. It is impossible to talk about the best of American democracy without talking about the fundamental role that prophetic religious people have played. And of course, not just Christians. Of course, you've got prophetic Jews like Abraham Heschel. You've got prophetic Buddhists like my dear sister Bell Hooks. You've got prophetic Russian Orthodox, like the towering dean of 
American Religious Studies as it relates to people of African descent, Princeton's own Professor Hal Roberto sitting here on the front row, you see. Uh, yeah, give him a hand. Give him a hand. <laughs> Absolutely. Prophetic religion, namely those who have been willing to take a risk and bear a cost in the name of a power bigger than them, willing to bear witness, but also affirming that Socratic self-examination. What I love about Brother Wallace is that he has responded to Socratic examination with his own Christian response or reply but it's not one of self-righteousness it's not one of self-celebration and self-congratulation it has everything to do with humility and maturity wrestling with the undersides of American reality and American history and even American mortality I'm thoroughly convinced that if there's no ma a major reawakening of Americans across the board, but specifically American Christians, that we could actually lose this precious yet precarious experiment in democracy called the United States. It coincides with the free market fundamentalism with 1% of the population on 48% of the net financial wealth before the tax cuts. What level of wealth inequality can the body politic contain before it's shattered? But the decrepit school systems in inner cities and the unavailable health care, 46 million and counting. 48% of all bankruptcies owing to what? No health care. Unavailable child care for working mothers. Not enough jobs of living wage. There was underemployment and unemployment hardly talked about. No labor page in the newspapers anymore, just business page. Don't keep track of working people anymore as if they're just disposable commodities in the calculation of profits. What makes one think that one can continue on in that way? The struggle for the soul of American democracy is in part and maybe in large part. The struggle for the soul of American Christianity. Why? 72% of Americans believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Over 51% of Americans speak on intimate terms with God at least four times a week. Fellow citizens, deeply shaped by Christian narratives, Christian stories. You see. And I never believed that prophetic sensibilities become a mass movement anywhere. See, that's the insight of Shakespeare, right? This Prophetic activity is always a citadel of the spiritually noble against the backdrop of the darkness of barbarism and cowardice. Of course, we don't know whether Shakespeare was a Christian, but we know he was deeply influenced by Montaigne. It's good enough for me. Catholic sensibility, but very free Catholic. Kind of hope the new Pope's reading Montaigne nightly, you know what I mean? Pray for him. It's true. 
with free market fundamentalism linked to an aggressive militarism and a increasing authoritarianism in our public discussion is frightening. And that's precisely why Brother Wallace's voice is so refreshing, so indispensable, and for me, so inspiring. You see? But he always pushes the attention away from himself. And that, for me, is a sign of magnanimity. And he's right. It has little to do with success, which is defined in America in terms of prosperity and security. But magnanimity has to do with greatness. And he uses a biblical criteria of greatness. He or she, the greatest among you, will be your servant. We'd be willing to raise up a vision because where there is no vision, the people perish. And if you love the people, you hate injustice. If you have compassion for the people, you abhor and loathe the conditions that do not allow them to flower and flourish. And we need so many more voices. And in fact, he's absolutely right. There are a number of voices heard on the grassroots level, but it gets hemorrhaged when it comes to televisual presence. You see, thank God we've got democracy now here tonight. Is that right there, brother? What, Sister Amy Gooden? You see, so we're projecting this around the world. <laughs> Princeton says hello <laughs> all around the world. We believe in robust, uninhibited dialogue. We're going to have some tough questions, and I'm going to sit down in just a second. But what we see in part is what it means to bring together with integrity the spiritual and the social. To bring together the existential and the economic. The personal and the political. By means of Socratic examination, which means that people are going to end up in very different places because we're not talking about unanimity either theologically, politically or ideologically. We're talking about being unsettled the shadow of sleepwalking and then to attempt to muster the courage to care enough to bear witness to be in some way organized affiliated, connected part of a network that's bigger than you so that you actually feel as if you are in some movement toward a grander vision of justice, democracy, kingdom of God, whatever language one deploys. And I think we have to be very honest that um, we have no ground for optimism, but as Brother Wallace says, we ought to be prisoners of hope, and hope is qualitatively different than optimism in the same way that Korea is qualitatively different than calling or vocation is qualitatively different than Profession, And this is true especially for young people. Because for so many older brothers and sisters of all colors, we, we tend to get world weary and jaded. I mean, there's some folk who are just on fire forever, like Professor George Hunziker. I mean, he's just on fire all the time. I don't know, where is he? Where, where's Brother George? There he is. Raise your hand there, brother. One of the most distinguished Christian theologians of our day. He's on fire all the time. Most of the brothers and sisters of all colors of your generation, they're tired. (laughs) 
And the question becomes, how do we bequeath and transmit this courage to think critically and courage to care and courage to hope to the younger generation? And the younger generation would always rather see a sermon than hear one. And what you have just beheld in this brother's voice, in his spirit, in his language, and in his life is an embodied and walking sermon that summons us to Socratic self-examination, to prophetic witness, and to the preserving of hope that would regenerate democracy, but never ever believing that democracy itself is some kind of paradise or utopia. And that's part of the grand tradition that he's a part the great-grandfather of Princeton's own Paul Rauschenbusch, Walter Rauschenbusch, towering figure of the tradition that Jim Wallace is a part of. Brian Honeber, Martin King, Dorothy Day, Philip Berrigan, Rabbi Michael Lerner, Sister Susanna Heschel. We can go down the line. We're looking for something grander and richer and deeper than just a fair and just political system, an economic order. That's what love is all about. It cuts much deeper than justice. But of course, so many of us would certainly opt for a much more just and democratic political and economic order. But we're also looking for what kinds of human beings we want to be as we struggle for it. That's the spiritual foundation that Brother Wallace was talking about. And it constitutes such a major challenge to each and every one of us. So let's now jump into dialogue and discussion with our dear brother. Thank you both for those words. And now we're going to take uh, questions from the audience. I, we, uh, Elizabeth and James, uh, can you come over here? There's uh, two students. If you'd like to speak, um, I encourage you to have a succinct question. <laughs> Everybody understand what I mean by that? Okay. Uh, so, so, and and uh, if you'd like, you can address it to one or the other of our panelists. Otherwise, you can. Um, we can leave it open to whichever one would like to answer. So, so the floor is open. Um, I, I wanted to ask to either: Have you had any opportunity to um, address the Islamic in building bridges with them in faith? I want to recommend a, a young uh, Islamic scholar. Uh, he was on John Stewart last week, uh, Reza Aslan. Uh, there, there is no God but God is his new book. I met him a couple weeks before, and and I, I find him very very helpful and very uh, uh, hopeful because he talks about the battle for the heart and soul of Islam now going on. It is not a battle. It's not this clash of Civilizations, a la Samuel Huntington, it's which is the danger of this of this Christian versus Islam, West versus 
it's, it's an internal battle. And I would contend that each of our faith traditions is in the midst of an internal battle. Absolutely. And maybe it is all the time. Uh, I often um, once uh, heard Cornell talk about this ongoing battle between fundamentalism on the one hand. All of our traditions have a fundamentalist tendency mm-hmm. that the best counter to that is indeed prophetic faith. I always want to say that the answer to bad religion is not secularism, but better religion. You know, And Reza, I just met him, just got his book, but I... I'm impressed by this young man and his understanding of how his own faith can become an open, uh, compassionate, justice-loving, peace-seeking, democratic, religious faith. And how he says, don't make it harder for us internally by the way you attack us externally. So... Absolutely. No, just briefly, that um, I mean, there's, there's talk now of actually trying to put forward Arabic translations, both race matters and democracy matters, and I would be thinking seriously of going to different parts of the world for this discussion. I have a chapter in my book talking about Socratizing Islam, which is to say acknowledging the very rich prophetic voices, past and present, and uh, Muhammad Taha, for example, who was killed in uh, the very uh, dictatorial regime in Sudan in 1985, whose wife actually is, is now in, uh, in Iowa. And I'll be returning there to give a um, lecture, the 20th anniversary uh, of the, um, the execution, accenting the prophetic, not just potential, but the prophetic voices already articulated within the very, very rich and multivariate tradition that we associate with Islam, with Muslim brothers and sisters. Thank you. I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask about um, one aspect of this movement. There's the thought and the action, and I wanted to ask about the thought part, because Reverend Wallace, you mentioned uh, politically how the debate gets framed and the vocabulary is created, and that enables the domination. Um, and I wanted to know who's framing the debate theologically. Or not necessarily who's framing it, but who's helping us to construct the conceptual framework that will allow us to fight conceptually as well as through the mass movement. Are there thinkers out there in America that are building this conceptual framework? We both have some names to offer, I suppose. Uh, uh, I think the principle in Washington, they understand this very well that whoever frames the debate wins the debate. Uh, when they say, are you, uh, are you for or against tax relief? Um, uh, uh, when you're on uh, uh, Hannity and Combs, uh, which is mostly being on Hannity, um, you have to always not let people like that just answer their questions, because they're often the, the wrong questions. You've got to reframe the questions. Uh, so who's doing that? Brian McLaren is a good friend of mine. He's becoming kind of a young leader of uh, something called the Emergent Church, a whole network of younger evangelical pastors. His new book has got a wonderful title, Generous Orthodoxy. 
Even the title says he's reframing the conversation. Uh, uh, I think uh, my, my colleague here, I still think that your chapter uh, in Race Matters on, on, on narcissism is one of the best things that we have for reframing the conversation. It really is, we, we make a lot of false choices. And I just wrote down a no, no, number of things that, that Cornell said to, to, be, to, be, to be personal and political. Let me just give, give another, another pair here. The contemplative and the activist. Mm. I think you can't remain an activist for very long unless you also become a contemplative. And for a contemplative to have integrity long-term, you must travel the road that Thomas Merton traveled, where you're applying your contemplation to the world. And I would I'll go further and say that spirit, the quest for spirituality in, in a consumer society is a dangerous one. And it can lead to a kind of, 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 of narcissism and a, co- a commodification yeah. of spirituality. The quest for spirituality needs to be disciplined by the struggle for justice. But the other way is also true. The struggle for justice that is not tempered by uh, a search for a deeper spirituality can become angry, ideological, burnout, bitter, and finally uh, very sectarian. So part of it is how to be neither religious right or perhaps secular left, how to, how, how to find the balances and the, the, um, the things that we need that aren't these polarized options, how to find better choices. So uh, a, a, a Catholic thinker and brother who I deeply admire is Richard Rohr. Uh, after the death of Henry Nouwen, who many of us knew and loved, I think Richard Rohr is emerging as uh, one of the best Catholic thinkers. Joan Chittister. Uh, when they said Benedict, I thought, why not Chinister? She's a, she's a Benedictine, Benedictine sister. That's why she wasn't chosen. Uh, Joan, uh, you know, uh, Catholics aren't often uh, uh, known as the best preachers, and Catholic women often don't, don't get to talk so much, and she is an incredible preacher. And so Joan Chittister, Richard Rohr, Brian McLaren uh, are, uh, are, are three that I would mention. Thank you. Yes. No. Can you, can you just bring? Why don't you bring it down? And and, I'll, and you can go next. Oh, hi. Um, yeah, I just like the idea of the social movement based on spirituality gives me hope. And I didn't feel alone when I came in. I was pleasantly surprised to see so many people. I thought I was going to have my choice of seats. But anyway, um, <laughs> well, I just want to make a quick statement. I'm, I'm, it'd be a pleasure to work with you from here going out of this room forward with, based on faith. Um, and as I say, as much as I like rock and roll, as much as I like folk music, it's time to rock and roll. But um, just how to be passionate without being angry, that's something I need to work on because I can sometimes get outraged over Fox News and talk radio and all those other idiots, you know, and I need to channel and focus like love and passion and caring without letting them throw me off my game, if you know what I mean. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Mm. No, I like that. I would say that uh, when Jesus went into the temple, he was angry. (laughs) But that's righteous indignation. What we want to avoid is bitterness. 
what we want to hold at arm's length would be the forms of uh, bigotry, a spirit of revenge, uh, an attempt to be cold, cruel, and indifferent to others. That's what you want to hold at arm's length. But anger is part of a rage, which has to do with the fact that you care so. So that in that sense, just a matter of language, I think it's very important that bitterness, revenge, coldness, cruelty, hold at arm's length. Righteous indignation, that's Amos, that's Micah, that's Martin King, that's Dorothy Day and Jim Wallace and other folk as part of the tradition. So I like that kind of spiritually informed anger. <laughs> uh, Reverend Wallace, would you like to add to that? Or are you... Well, you had, when you said the word channel, that was, was critical. Uh, stewing in your anger uh, mm. pollutes the heart and, and the mind. Channeling it in terms of what you're going to do about it right. really right. makes the difference. Right. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Dr. Wallace, you've said that um, faith is supposed to change the big things. So I was wondering, in your opinion, whether it matters what kind of faith. What kind of faith? What faith tradition, which religion, what kind of faith, really? Well, um, uh, as I think we both both said tonight, um, uh, this conversation um, is, um, uh, is really an open table. And, uh, you know, I, I told a story at the seminary. I'll repeat very quickly here because it involves a good friend of ours. Mm. Uh, a number of us were going to, go to the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol to uh, protest, as amazing as it sounds, our government was cutting taxes on the rich and cutting programs for the poor. I mean, I know it's hard to believe, but <laughs> so we were going to, uh, to protest this, and we had 55 Catholic women and, and uh, inner-city pastors and some black preachers and a handful of evangelicals. And, uh, and Michael Lerner called and said, uh, you got room for a rabbi? And I said, sure, we're going to do Isaiah. You can read the text, you know. So we got there, all in our clerical paraphernalia. And, uh, and Michael read from Isaiah, Woe to you legislators who pass infamous laws denying the poor among my people of their rights. Well, when you, you do that kind of thing in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, you tend to get arrested. And so, so we did. And, uh, and, uh, and then in jail, uh, there's, there's uh, Michael Lerner sitting with Tony Campolo, uh, a, a Baptist evangelist. And they're having a, a discussion about theology, actually Christology. Who was Jesus Christ? Was he the incarnate Son of God? Was he a prophet? Who was Jesus? And I saw them, and they were going on for an hour, and I saw them, and then I got it. This is my, this is my model of interfaith collaboration. You each get arrested for your faith and talk theology in jail. <laughs> yes. Yes, sir. From your experience, is this institution 
teaching, and for that matter, you taught at Harvard. Does Harvard teach you humility? Or for that matter, does any American universities teach humility? <laughs> Appreciate that question, though. Somebody really got fired up on that question. <laughs> no, I, I think um, the important thing to keep in mind here is that uh, there's not one thing or one disposition or one vision or one orientation that any university teaches because there's a variety of different voices and viewpoints that constitute faculty curriculum and so on. I think there's no doubt that here at Princeton, in stark contrast to Harvard, we have a president <laughs> whose vision, whose vision, when articulated, does accent humility, but that's the vision of the president. That doesn't mean Princeton teaches humility because that leaves space for a lot of arrogant professors still to have to do what they want to do, you see. So that, and that's a good thing. I don't believe that humility is the kind of thing that's imposed. It has to be enacted. Uh, but it is certainly part and parcel of the subject matter of a variety of courses in terms of the inc incomplete character of what we can know, the unfinished character of what we can pursue and so forth. So my answer to your question is certainly humility is very much a part of the way of life of Princeton in terms of certain slices of this institution, but it's not taught as a doctrine. And in that sense, uh, uh, it, it might um, fall short of what you actually are after in your question. And I think that's certainly true for most other institutions. Uh, yes. Elizabeth? Oh, somebody give her a... Oh, so, I'm sorry, can you wait for a mic, oh, yeah, James? Wait, wait, I'm an immigrant, and I came to the United States uh, because I thought uh, it would be a wonderful country to come in and study in and so forth. So I, I studied at the American University of Beirut, and I met Americans over there, and I was very impressed with them, loved them, and had a great you know, vision of what America is going to be like. Then I came here, and then the war started, the war on Iraq, and I realized that the American democracy is paper thin. It's really as thin as the paper cigarette. It's only a veneer. Because when things really happen, you know, look at the way that the, uh, uh, the lies uh, it, t that led us to the war on Iraq, there was no voice. There was no American voice. It was, I mean, even the demonstrations did not really, uh, you know, materialize that it did not really stop the war in any shape if, or form. If I can interrupt yeah. you, could you please ask a question? I will. So I'm just saying, you know, what happened to the American democracy? Where is the leadership? Where is the tradition? I don't see it. You know, um, I, was, I was actually quite, quite proud of the movement, the peace movement, that, that began to grow and grow and grow in the run-up of the war in Iraq. And afterwards, a lot of people felt like they had failed, the movement had failed, we had failed. 
I said, no, this is not a failure of a peace movement. It's a failure of democracy. Because uh, this administration, it now appears, had made a decision to go to war with Iraq long before those last few months, even long before September 11th. And so there was, uh, for example, just speaking from the churches, there was more unity in the churches in terms of church bodies that we'd ever seen before. Only one major church body in the world, the Southern Baptists, uh, were in support of the war in Iraq. The ones who spoke, some didn't speak, but the ones who spoke, spoke against the war. Uh, and a majority, a majority of Christians around the world were against the war in Iraq, even a majority of evangelical Christians, even in countries like the UK, allied to us, their Christians were against the war. The House of Bishops in England had never uh, opposed its government like it did this time. So uh, two things, I think, to be critical of. One is a decision-making on the part of an administration who really wasn't weighing, weighing uh, opinion uh, back and forth. This president never, never, this president spoke to one religious leader who disagreed with him on the war in Iraq. That was John Paul II because he had to speak to him. Nobody else. Um, The other thing is the media. The media, this, the media was for the war in Iraq. And the numbers in the polls showed us, depending on how the question was asked, either 50-50 or worse, 60-40. Let's take the worst number, 60-40. Did we have uh, 40% of the airtime uh, during the war, during the run-up in the debate? Did we have even close to that, maybe less than 10% of the airtime was, was, was ours to, uh, to use? So, the media was for the war, and the political decision-making process was was circumventing democracy at every turn. So I think that says more about them than it does about us. Mm. The only thing I would say uh, to be to learn from next time is uh, I have a long section in the book about it's called "Protest is Good, Alternatives Are Better." And I think we, as as a peace movement, need to talk more about how we are going to resolve uh, the situations that war claims to resolve but doesn't. If nonviolence, for example, or other alternatives are to be credible, they must answer the questions that violence pretends to answer and not say those aren't real questions. They are real questions. We have to do more than protest how others do it. We have to show better, I think, how we might do it. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important to draw a distinction, though, between the voices expressed and the impact of those voices. Mm-hmm. Their voices were expressed all through the newspapers. The churches came together with major pages. You had young people demonstrating. And, of course, you had more people arrested in New York City than any time in the history of New York City. 1,804 fellow citizens arrested at the Republican National Convention. That's voices expressed, but that's different than the impact and exercising a power vis-a-vis the status quo. It's the relative impotence. That leaves us frustrated, but we don't want to downplay the courage of fellow citizens who actually did come forward 
and took whatever risk is necessary. In that sense, I would say democracy was operating in hearts and minds and souls through voices, mm -hmm. but the institutional mechanisms were hemorrhaged. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Up there. Reverend Wallace, um, I think that the debate on homosexuality and abortion is so charged, particularly the homosexual one, that I'd rather not talk about it at times. But as an evangelical Christian, what should the evangelical response to abortion and homosexuality be? Just two small questions you'd like to resolve there? <laughs> I call these the big ones. You know. Sure, let's, let's take them both one at a time. Um, I went to Focus on the Family, and I had a debate with them. Do you all know Focus on the Family? In Colorado Springs. I, these were James Dobson's top policy people. I said, you know, um, I am with you on how critical or how important or how much of a crisis family breakdown really is. Uh, my neighborhood has had 80% single-parent families. You, you can't overcome poverty with 80% single-parent families. You've got to reweave the bonds of family, community, extended family, community because somebody's got to put their arms around the kids who are falling between the cracks. So this is a huge crisis, family breakdown, uh, marriage, parenting. When I go around the country, I say this, parenting has become a countercultural activity in America. All the parents nod their heads, liberal or conservative. So I said, I'm with you on family breakdown, but please explain to me, if you will, I just don't quite understand how it is that gay and lesbian people are the ones responsible for the breakdown of the family. I just don't quite get that. And after an hour and a half, focus on the family. Top policy people conceded the point. They said, we will admit that family breakdown is caused much more by heterosexual dysfunction than by what they said, homosexuals. But, they said, we can't speak for our fundraising department. Now, in my opinion, and the anti-gay marriage amendments became, in this election, became a surrogate, a surrogate for caring about the family. That's what they became. That's the wrong surrogate for caring about the family. However, I think the progressive side of politics and Democrats have to take back a concern, a care, an advocacy of the family. Parenting, raising kids, the most important and toughest I've got too, most important and toughest job that I have is raising those two boys. How do we help parents in their parenting? Families stay together, hold together. It's about economics, it's about Oh, family leave policies, how's that for a pro-family value? Uh, how about a living family wage? Nine million American families work hard full-time and are falling short. If you work hard full-time in America, you should not be poor. And nine million families are. So, so how do we, I want the progressive side to take back family values, if you will, and say we are going to be pro-family, pro-parenting, pro-marriage, pro-kids, and most of us religious people, most of us do favor some kind of legal protection for same-sex couples in a good and decent and democratic society. You can be pro-family and pro-gay civil rights at the same time. And that common ground... 
is going to win many people over. On abortion, why can't we just pro-life and pro-choice people together target this tragic, uh, massive uh, number of unwanted pregnancies in, in, in America? Let's change dramatically the number of the abortion rate in America. is a tragedy. It's a disaster. We can change that by targeting teenage pregnancy, adoption reform. Again, supporting low-income women economically always reduces the abortion rate. There could be a combined joint effort from pro-life and pro-choice people to dramatically reduce these massive numbers of unwanted pregnancies. That's a common ground that a lot of people are just anxious to stand upon. Thank you. We have one more. You uh, talk about the difficulty that progressives, that Democrats have in talking about religion. And it seems to me that one of the issues uh, that the Democratic Party and progressives have really been very strong about is um, the importance of not placing one religious group over another. Uh, in, in the public dialogue and in the public square. You've mentioned uh, Michael Lerner. Um, can you talk about other uh, non-Christian religious leaders who you've been able to engage or who you see in, in around the country are engaged together with Christians in starting this dialogue? I mean, Michael has one wonderful stuff. I don't know how influential he is in the broader Jewish community. And um, so, so, you know, are there, are there already some examples out there um, that can help the Democrats and the progressives feel more comfortable talking about uh, these religious issues? Well, I, I, I had the, the honor of, uh, of, of, of joining uh, David Saperstein and his family for Seder last, uh, last weekend. Uh, David is quite an influential Jewish voice in America. And uh, David and I spoke recently to um, uh, uh, 20 CEOs of the largest environmental groups in the country, most of which were not religious people. I think one of them was called himself a religious person. And, and we both, David and I, said we, we, we know that many of you uh, aren't, uh, aren't re- religious, but we, we want to just thank you for doing the Lord's work. <laughs> and and to tell you how many young uh, religious people there are around the country who are identifying this issue, this issue of the environment, mm-hmm. as as key to them, and so uh, I I find a number of um, um, uh, Arthur Waskow is another very clear voice, uh, and and I mentioned Reza Aslan before. Uh, I I just think there's a growing number of people who are finding each other. In fact, there's a phone call now on Thursdays of progressive religious leaders, uh, Jewish, Christian, um, uh, see, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, and now you, 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 some Buddhist. In fact, I, I was at a bookstore, uh, and the owner said, I'm a Jewish Buddhist, and I'm, I'm joining the movement. You know, so, of course, it was Marin, you know. Marin, Marin County. <laughs> so I think there are a lot of voices that I'm hearing out there. Well, last question is over here in the corner. James? No, no, oh, uh, come on, work it out. Which one? I mean, I'd like to, but I mean, okay, if you're going to pull up me, thank you. Both. Maybe, we have, maybe we have two more. Okay, I've been told that we're going to take both your questions, so you can, you, can, you can go one after another. 
I would have taken it, too. <laughs> Thank you. Um, on Sunday, I watched a film uh, sponsored by the African Film Festival, which discussed the German occupation of Namibia. And it argued that perhaps the discussion about aid needs to be changed from one of charity to making things right. In your book, you mentioned something similar to that topic, and I wondered what the bellwether was for that issue in your travels around the country. The issue of? The issue of changing the discussion of aid to poor countries from one of charity to the one of actually making things right. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I just, you know, I, I don't, I have met President Bush and we've had a, a chance to talk a little bit around the edges of meetings, and I never question his piety, but I do question his theology. And one of the places is this issue. Uh, the God of the Bible is simply not a God of charity. The God of the Bible is a God of justice. The topics are, as I said before, they're land, labor, capital. Um, uh, you know, I know a lot of you are, are uh, expert on this, but... Um, as you all know, in your extensive readings of, of, uh, of biblical archaeology, am I right? Yeah, yeah, I knew this crowd would be in the biblical archaeology. When they dig down in the ruins of ancient Israel, the archaeologists, they find periods of time when the houses are more or less the same size. The artifacts show relative equality, not sameness, but a relative equality between the people. During those periods, there are no prophets. No prophetic voices arise. When they dig down in other times, like the 8th century, and find huge houses and small shacks, and, and it, it resembles what Cornell spoke of tonight, these great chasms, the Wall Street Journal, you know, talks about the wealth chasm now, you know. When they find those great disparities, it's then at those moments, coincidentally, the prophets arise and thunder the judgment and justice of God. The Bible doesn't mind prosperity so long as it is shared. It is the gap, the gulf, the discrepancy, the breaking of the social fabric that, that, are, that enrages the prophets. And so we can't... World vision once had an ad, and I was there, and they showed me this ad, and it said, it showed some kid in Africa with flies circling around his face. It said, we, we're not asking you to change your lifestyle, just his. And I said, that's a horrible ad. We are asking Americans to change their lifestyle, too. Well, they don't do that ad a anymore. Mm. Now they talk about the issue being one of justice. And I think we have to be very clear about this. Mm -hmm. uh, voluntary faith-based initiatives with no resources, no resources to make any serious difference in poverty reduction uh, is not adequate. That's a charity that falls far short of biblical justice. Thank you. And the last question. Thank you. Uh, for both Reverend Wallace and uh, uh, Dr. Rust, um, the religious right seems very well connected. So at any point, 
the media outlets, the politicians, the think tanks, they're all talking off of the same page, the same talking points. Can you describe in your movement, in our movement, what the effort is to get the framing coordinated so we're not death by a thousand paper cuts, so we're, we're, we're attacking one issue or, or one, we're framing one issue in a way that we, would, uh, we could all attack? Yeah, let me let you have the last word there, but um, <laughs> two quick things, though. One of the signs of the stirrings of the kind of democratic awakening that we both are calling for is the surfacing of more and more conflict and contestation among conservative fellow citizens. And I'm doing all that I can to <laughs> disarticulate that hegemonic consensus. Because historically, democratic energy from below is never sufficient. You have to have conflict among the elites themselves. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been crushed if he had not had the possibility of liberal Republicans and Democrats who are willing to confront Southern Democrats in high places. So there's always a connection between dissensus among conservative elites and democratic energy from below. And we are seeing that very slowly now, but very significantly now. Uh, secondly, though, I, I don't think that there can be any kind of overarching coordination for progressive voices. That's what I meant by trying to hold at arm's length any kind of excessive co uh, coordination or what I was even calling unanimity. I think that what, what distinguishes progressives is very much each group finding its voice and looking for convergence, not coordination. See, I believe that it's authoritarian to impose, but it's democratic to come together and share where you overlap. I don't believe there's ever going to be and ought not be a democratic movement that has non-democratic means. I, I think there's a close relation between means and ends here. And if the right is willing to use some authoritarian means in order to reach authoritarian means, I as a radical Democrat, small d, as well as a Christian capital C, still refuse to use authoritarian means for democratic ends. Because that's where the issues of integrity, that's where the issues of what kind of person, citizen, human being you are begin to surface. So coordination with different voices, organizations coming together, absolutely. But imitation of the kind of authoritarian imposition from below, be it from White House, Corporate elite, business round table, and so forth. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, if, for example, there was a possibility of a violent overthrow of the U.S. government to eliminate poverty, <laughs> I would still oppose it. Because there's a relation between means and ends, and the people who were behind the violence would more than likely end up authoritarian elites. That would impose itself. So that is that particular spirit, I think, that embodies what Brother Wallace and myself in part represent. 
The way I would, I agree with that. The way I would phrase your question, at least for me, the question I ask myself these days is, um, you know, earlier I talked about, uh, Charles Finney is for me a great model, is the altar call of the campaign to abolish slavery. I, I would, a good friend of, of my, Marshall Gans, you know, Marshall Gans, who teaches organizing at the Kennedy School at Harvard, came to one of these events in, uh, California where he was out doing a sabbatical. And uh, he, w- he was very excited and very, as he always is, insightful. And he said, I felt an electricity tonight that I haven't felt since the old days, the old movement days. But I think we've got to get clearer about what the altar call is. And I think there's some wisdom in that. Um, movements aren't just about everything at the same time. Uh, there are many things that we are working for, committed to, in favor of, but movements need some specificity. Uh, and uh, so what is the altar call? Uh, it will be all of us offering our best uh, commitments, insights, resources, gifts, and all the rest. But I do think there has to be some, probably as we grow here, some more clarity around what the altar call is. It's probably going to be, I think, as I listen to, the, to a younger generation of activists, What's motivating them is, is in fact, around, I'm, I'm wearing a little armband here, the one campaign, this is, uh, you know, Bono's involvement in World Vision, Bread for the World, it's the G8, it's the, it's the Global Poverty Agenda in 2005. We're having a big G8 uh, church leaders summit before Edinburgh. We're going to be having a circle of prayer and fasting around the UN, deliberations around the, the Millennium Development Goals in September. You're all invited to... Well, not a circle. We'd be in the Hudson River if we circled it, but maybe a semi-circle around the UN. Um, but I think it's going to be in that in that in that sort of relation between between the poverty that there's going to become and at some point uh, the Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point, where the world demands a solution to extreme poverty. We're not there yet, but we're moving up to that place. And the connection of that kind of extreme poverty to conflict and war and violence. I think in that connection, uh, the altar call is someplace in there. And then, of course, what this all does to the environment is also critical to so many. So I think maybe clarifying what we're going to do together, uh, is, is a good thing. And then looking for, as Colonel said, the convergence points, I think is absolutely, absolutely critical without falling into the sort of the lockstep being on the same page, you must all do this, that the right does. Well, you know, we're doing little things like, like, uh, like, like Jesse's here to, to, uh, to uh, take your e- emails. We will have an email altar call if you'd like. I know your email is your essence. It's like your connection to the world, you know. But we do want people to sign up for the Sojo Mail, our weekly email. It's free. It's student rates and all that. But it gets you linked to action alerts, resources, organizations. We're doing those kind of things, and I hope you all are on that list or will sign up. But beyond the, the infrastructure networking organizing, I think we have to clarify what the altar call really is going to be. Thank so you. that's, that's I wanna, a good way. Thank you very much. I want to I pause right before we, we offer our, our, uh, our thanks by just taking a moment in silence together and take a moment to reflect on what happened tonight and maybe in your own way uh, offer a prayer or a meditation or maybe resolve towards the future. If we could just take a moment together.
Thank you. And now I'd like to extend Princeton's thanks to both of these men for their efforts tonight.